Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty well. The other day, Lisa was trying to remember the name of a song, and she was like, What's that George Michael song? Caress of Darkness? Something like that? I had to think for a second, and I was like, Do you mean Careless Whispers? And it turned out she did. I had two immediate thoughts. The first one was, That is very funny. The second one was, Okay, that's a Wham song, not just a George Michael song. This is Andrew Wrigley erasure, and I will not stand for it. So then I started trying to, like, brainstorm what, like, a super goth version of Wham would sound like and what their lyrics might be. And I realized, there's no comfort in the truth, pain is all you'll find, would totally work for a song called Caress of Darkness. So I guess Wham is pretty goth. Good for them. Anyway, you didn't come here to listen to me talk about Wham. Although if you did, I think I do still remember all of the words to the Wham rap from Music from the Edge of Heaven. But we can talk about that some other time. For now, let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Megan Bob. If a snake did karate, it would be A, adorable, and second would go chop chop hiss. If Hub does a podcast, it's firstly terrific, and two, it has a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Megan Bob. You might remember Megan Bob from being an absolutely delightful guest on this show a little while ago. And if we're lucky, maybe they'll come back the next time Corey has an unfortunate dimensional traveling mishap. Let's hope so. Defenders, number 104, February, 1982. Yesterday Never Dies. Written by J.M. DeMatteis, drawn by Don Perlin, inked by Joe Sinnott and Al Milgram, lettered by Diana Albers, colored by George Russos, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Devil Slayer. Nighthawk. Valkyrie, Hellcat, Gargoyle, Doctor Strange, Wong, Son of Satan, Beast, Wonder Man, and Daredevil, kinda. Previously in the Defenders. To forestall his fiendish father taking over the Earth, Devil Daddy Do-Gooder Damien Hellstrom, a.k.a. Son of Satan, had banished all humanity from his soul and moved to Hell to start working for his perfidious papa. Speaking of Mephistophelian-monikered superheroes, an unquantifiable but seemingly significant amount of comic book time ago, the Defenders started palling around with a self-serious supertype named Eric Simon Payne, a.k.a. Devil Slayer. Eric had some low-grade telepathy and a magic teleporting cape he got when he accidentally joined a cult of demons whose dogma was largely based on lyrics to Blue Oyster Cult songs. When Eric found out that his buddies were demons, he left the cult and helped the Defenders defeat them. Then, a little while ago, Devil Slayer encountered a hippie named Ira Sunshine Gross, who was able to see through the telepathic projection Eric used to conceal his outlandish adventuring attire. 
Eric initially thought Sunshine must be a demon, so he threatened him with a sword, then apologized, bought him some groceries, found out he was a heroin addict, threatened him with a sword again, apologized, and finally, recognizing aspects of his own checkered past mirrored in that of the hapless hippie, promised to help cure Sunshine's addiction. Then he left to go fight the weaponized collective nihilism of a race of suicidal, speedo-clad moon angels, because that's the sort of thing that happens when you hang out with the Defenders. Meanwhile, the government's investigation into the shady financial dealings of billionaire do well bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond, aka Nighthawk, had finally concluded. Kyle was found guilty of tax evasion and gross financial malfeasance, but thanks to the legal maneuvering of his high-priced lawyers Milton Rosenblum and Matt Murdock, aka Daredevil, the affluent avian aficionado was able to avoid any jail time provided he pay three quarters of a million dollars in back taxes. Kyle happily cut a check to Uncle Sam, but as he was leaving the courthouse, a crooked government agent named August Masters cryptically claimed to be responsible for the leniency of the judge's verdict. Seeing as the last time they had encountered one another, Masters had been performing unethical experiments on Kyle's institutionalized ex-girlfriend Mindy and had ordered her to attack Kyle with a legion of psychic mind rats, Nighthawk was understandably skeptical about Masters' alleged benevolence. Concurrent to Kyle's confounding conversation with his conspicuously considerate nemesis, the gregarious blue-furred former Avenger Hank McCoy, a.k.a. Beast, stopped by the Sanctum Sanctimonious to talk to Doctor Strange about an urgent matter of dire importance. But Steve wasn't home, so after waiting for a few hours, Hank decided to come back later. Gadzooks! After nearly conquering the Earth in an attempt to get Damon Hellstrom to join him in Hell, what will Satan do with him now that his son's there? How long will Beast wait before returning to discuss his urgent matter that cannot wait? And exactly how checkered is Devil Slayer's checkered past? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so he kicks him out. Two weeks. Then, when he does return, he still doesn't get around to mentioning what it was. And, turns out his past isn't just checkered, it's plaid, argyle, paisley, gingham, and whatever pattern murdering children is. Houndstooth? Probably houndstooth. There's just something about chef pants that I've never trusted. Devil Slayer is hanging out with Sunshine in the drug-addled hippie's dilapidated apartment. He's like, Okay, Sunshine, I used my telepathy to fix some of the damage years of drug abuse has done to your brain. Now it's time for you to quit using heroin. Sunshine is like, Okay, man, but that sounds hard. Can I have some heroin first? Devil Slayer is like, No! He pushes Sunshine down onto the dirty futon on the floor. In a mean way, not a sexy way. Although I guess that sort of depends on what you're into. This seems to snap Sunshine out of it, and he's like, Okay, fine, man. No more heroin. Devil Slayer seems stoked to hear that. He starts to give Sunshine a little pep talk, but is interrupted by a knock at the door. It is a bee-butted monkey demon who says he has a letter for one Eric Simon Payne. Huh. You know, you'd think if you were gonna give your monkey demon courier a body part from a bee, most people would probably go with the wings. His butt doesn't even have a stinger on it, it's just shaped like a bee butt. Well, maybe winged monkey couriers are copyright protected by the Wizard of Oz, and the demon's employer didn't want to risk a lawsuit. That's probably it. The bee-butted monkey demon hands Eric an envelope, 
says that no tip is necessary, and disappears in a puff of smoke. Eric opens the envelope and cries out an exclamation of dismay. Ooh, paper cut? Yeah, those suck. Guess you should have reached into that magic cape of his and pulled out a letter opener. You know, because he can pull any weapon he wants out of there. Does a letter opener count as a weapon? I mean, if the pen is mightier than the sword, then a sword-shaped stationary accessory should be very mighty indeed. Well, Eric's letter opener retrieval skills prove to be irrelevant, because it turns out his dismay is not paper cut related after all. The envelope contains pictures of Payne's ex-wife, Corey, and a letter indicating that she has been kidnapped. This information sends Devil Slayer into a rage. An oddly introspective rage, but a rage nonetheless. He flings the letter to the floor and starts staring off into the middle distance, furiously reminiscing about his past. Eric thinks back to when he was a soldier in Vietnam. Acting on orders from his superiors, he apparently burned down several villages filled with innocent people. What the fuck, Eric? When the war was over, he came home and started fighting with his wife, Corey. They got a divorce, and he didn't take it particularly well and started drinking heavily. Then he got sober and cleaned himself up. Good for him. Oh, wait, he cleaned himself up and got sober so that he could take a job assassinating people for the mafia. Seriously, what the fuck, Eric? Actually, since this is the Marvel Universe, it probably wasn't the Mafia, but the legally dissimilar crime organization known as the Magia. But the point still stands. Eric placated what little remained of his conscience by convincing himself that the people he was killing were all bad guys, so it was okay. Then one day he was sent out to murder a guy who he was told was a rival gangster. Eric put a pipe bomb in the guy's car, but the guy's wife and kid got in the car before he did, and died in the explosion. Oh, shit. Also, it turns out Eric's intended victim wasn't a gangster after all, but a reporter who was working on an expose about organized crime. Which I guess makes things a little bit worse, but it's not like it would have been great if Eric had murdered a gangster's wife and child. Eric felt bad about this murder, so he quit his job as a hitman. Then he joined the evil cult and started working as a hitman for them. Damn it, Eric, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know what? I wish you had gotten that paper cut. It turns out that the reporter was a guy named Ian Fate, and after Eric murdered his family, he started researching sorcery so that he could seek vengeance. It was he who kidnapped Cory and employed the bee-butted monkey demon. Eric eventually stops reminiscing about all the despicable shit he's done in his life. He turns to Sunshine and is like, I'm gonna go try to save my ex-wife, because the last time we saw each other, I kinda got the feeling she was still into me. I know I said I'd stick around and be there for you, but you'll be okay kicking heroin by yourself, cold turkey, right? Okay, cool, bye! And with that, Devil Slayer steps into his magic cape and teleports himself away. Meanwhile, somewhere in Arizona, a lone figure staggers across the warm desert sands. The unsteady wanderer bears a distinctive tattoo of a pentagram across his bare chest. Hey, it's Damon Hellstrom, the son of Satan! Hi, son of Satan! As burning sulfurous tears drip across his face, Damon collapses to the ground and is like, Damn it, Dad! Why did you kick me out of hell? Satan appears before him and is like, Because you still kinda suck. There's a little bit of goodness left in your soul. Get back to me when you're totally evil and shitty, and maybe I'll let you back into hell. Until then, enjoy Arizona, chump. Poor Damon. 
If his dad is really looking to have an evil piece of shit to help him run hell, maybe he should look into adopting Eric. Later that night at the Sanctum Sanctimonious, Beast is finally sitting down with Doctor Strange and is about to tell him about the urgent matter he wanted to discuss when he stopped by a couple weeks ago. Beast is about to divulge the nature of his problem when there's a knock at the door. Damn it, happenstance! The intrusion turns out to be none other than Ira Sunshine Gross. Still shaking from withdrawal, the reformed heroin enthusiast is worried the Devil Slayer might be walking into a trap. Hands trembling, he gives Steve the envelope that Eric had dropped on his way out of the apartment, and urges the sorcerer to find Devil Slayer and please help him rescue his ex-wife. His mission of mercy completed, Sunshine crumples to the sanctum floor. Steve has Wong take the ailing Ira to a guest room, and turns to address Beast. He's like, Sorry about this, but it looks like I have to go help an acquaintance rescue his ex-wife from a guy whose family he just killed. Care to come along? You can tell me that urgent matter you wanted to discuss when we're done. Beast is like, Sure thing, that urgent matter can wait. Okay, Beast, I know you speak like 50 languages. You do know what urgent means, right? Because it seems like maybe you don't. Valkyrie, Patsy, and Gargoyle are all busy, so Beast suggests that they take his buddy Simon Williams, a.k.a. Wonder Man, along for backup. Simon is a stuntman and aspiring actor. He is also made of pure ionic energy, which basically just means he's super strong and fast. Later on, I think he learns to fly and can shoot nonsense beams out of his fist, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't know that yet. Simon is practicing lines for an upcoming film, when Astral Steve pops into his mirror and asks him to lend a hand. Simon's like, Honestly, Steve, you seem like kind of a weirdo, but if Hank's in, then so am I. Let's go help your assassin friend defeat the reporter whose family he murdered. Do I have that right? Steve is like, Yes, although when you say it like that, it doesn't sound great, does it? No, Steve, it doesn't. It really doesn't. As Steve and Simon are getting to know one another, Devil Slayer is confronting Ian Fate in an abandoned warehouse. Ian's still pretty miffed about the whole wife and kid murder, but Eric tells him to give it a rest. He's just there to get, quote, his woman, unquote. Damn it, Eric! Ian points out that A, the unconscious body of Corey Payne, is levitating nearby, surrounded by razor-sharp hovering demons, which he could send plunging into her with a mere thought, and two, on a related note, Eric is hardly in a position to make demands, and as such, he should just sit down and listen to an exposition dump. Eric is forced to concede that those are excellent points. Ian Fate stands in the middle of a pentagram surrounded by demons and begins his exposition. He's like, After you murdered my wife and child, I decided to learn magic. Eric's like, Yeah, you said that in your letter. Ian's like, Oh, right, well, guess I better just get on with the revenge. He zaps Devil Slayer with a bolt of magic. Hooray! I'm sorry, I know he's supposed to be the bad guy here, but come on. Fuck Eric. Devil Slayer stumbles to his feet and is like, It'll take more than that to kill me. Fate is like, Yeah, I know that, dumbass, but I'm not gonna kill you. I'm gonna make you watch while I kill your wife. Okay, that guy just got a lot less sympathetic. Enraged, Eric rushes towards Ian, but those demons I mentioned earlier intervene. Ian makes a mystical gesture, and suddenly the knives plunge into Corey's body, killing her. Oh, dang! 
Devil Slayer is horrified. Then the image of Cory's corpse shimmers and disappears. Ian's like, nah, just fucking with you. Pretty good prank, huh? No, no, no. Cory's not here right now. I stuffed her in this other dimension full of whacked out murder demons. I sealed her in a dome of magic, but it won't hold out too much longer, and when that mystical snow globe breaks, all those demons are gonna go kill crazy on her. Neat, huh? Devil Slayer does not think that is neat. For maybe the first time this issue, I'm forced to agree with Eric. Ian's like, well, whatever. I figure you'll use your little cape to go looking for her, but there's no way you'll find her in time, and even if you do, there are way too many demons for you to fight. So she'll die, and there's nothing you can do about it, and it will destroy you just like the death of my family destroyed me. Anyway, bye! And with those parting words, Ian Fate teleports away. I think he might be overestimating Eric's capacity for grief and remorse, but Devil Slayer does seem genuinely distraught at the thought of his ex-wife's death. He starts to lament that there seems to be no hope, but his lamentation is interrupted by the arrival of Steve, Hank, and Simon, who are like, Cheer up, buddy, we got this! Hooray! Meanwhile, across town, Nighthawk is having a party with Valkyrie, Hellcat, Gargoyle, and his lawyers Matt Murdock and Milton Rosenblum to celebrate the fact that he doesn't have to go to jail. Patsy is like, That's not all we're celebrating! I want to thank Kyle for buying a house in Manhattan for me, Val, and Gargoyle to live in. Thanks, buddy. Matt is about to give a speech as well, but before we get to find out how Kyle purchased his friendship, a bunch of guys in fancy suits bust in the door and are like, All right, Richmond, we's his government agent, see? And our boss, August Masters, says he wants to seize yous. So you're coming with us. Milton stands up and is like, I'm a fancy lawyer, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't have to go with you. One of the alleged G-men is like, Shut up, yous! And he pushes Rosenblum down. Matt Murdock thinks to himself, I'm starting to think these guys might not be on the up and up. I'd try to fight them, but nobody knows that I'm secretly Daredevil, and I wouldn't want to jeopardize my very secret identity. Sure, Matt. Nobody knows you're Daredevil. Got it. Fortunately, Val, Patsy, and Isaac seem to share Matt's suspicions as to the veracity of these purported agents' credentials. They leap to their feet and start to rush the potentially fraudulent feds. Unfortunately, the would-be agents were prepared for this turn of events. They whip out some fancy gas guns and start spraying clouds of knockout gas, which immediately render the heroes unconscious. They drag Patsy, Kyle, Val, and Isaac away, leaving Matt and Milton to wake up hours later, pondering that age-old question. What happened? Back at Ian Fate's warehouse, Steve tells Devil Slayer that he's figured out the coordinates of the dimension that Fate has taken Cory to. Wonder Man and Beast are like, cool, let's go get her. But Devil Slayer's like, what do you mean we? She's my ex-wife, that means this is all about me and my ego. Just tell me where she is and I'll go rescue her by myself. Damn it, Devil Slayer! Can you stop being the absolute worst for one goddamn second? Fortunately, Beast is able to prevail on Eric that since he was unable to do anything at all when he confronted Ian like 15 minutes ago, maybe it would be best if they all went. Eric begrudgingly agrees and uses his cape to teleport them all to the location Steve indicates. They end up in a weirdo dimension filled with polka dots and dildo trees. Huh. Kind of nice to see a dimension that isn't all stalagmites, random planets, and Kirby Crackle for a change. 
At first, the gang isn't sure they're in the right place. But then they turn their heads a few degrees and see a snow globe of sorcerous energy containing Cory Payne, which is being swarmed by a horde of murderous demons. Hovering in the air above this macabre tableau is Ian Payne, looking resplendent in a crushed velvet tuxedo and purple cummerbund. Yep, pretty sure this is the right place. Eric makes a beeline towards his ex-wife. Beast and Wonder Man start pummeling demons, and Steve and Ian engage one another in an aerial mystic melee. The two sides seem fairly well matched. Despite being a relative newcomer to the dark arts, Ian is a quick study with a natural aptitude and what he lacks in experience he makes up for in determination and raw power. He fights Steve to a near standstill, but in the end Strange's superior skill and years of experience prove too much to overcome. Devil Slayer manages to fight his way to Cory's bubble just before it dissolves. Fighting back to back, Eric, Beast, and Wonder Man manage to keep the bloodthirsty demons at bay and keep Cory safe. For about a minute. Then one of the demons Eric thought he had dispatched pulls the sword he had been stabbed with out of his own abdomen and leaps at Cory. Beast jumps in and tries to intercept the attack, but he's too late. Cory has been run through, and the wound is fatal. Wow. I did not see that coming. The battle grinds to a halt as the combatants all seem to be struck by the enormity of what has just happened. Then, to everyone's amazement, Cory's appearance begins to shimmer and transform. No longer is the corpse that Eric holds in his arms that of an attractive young black woman. It is now that of an all-too-familiar, jaundiced and emaciated, middle-aged hippie. Cory Payne is nowhere to be seen. The body of Ira Sunshine Gross lies dead in her place. Dang. Also, huh? Eric is confused and angry, which seems to be a bit of a default setting for him. Ian Fate is like, yeah, I was gonna kill your wife, but that seemed really mean, and I couldn't bring myself to go through with it. But then, I saw you hanging around with this hippie, and was like, you know, Eric seems to like this guy, and I could totally kill a hippie. I mean, that's what, a misdemeanor in most states? So I pulled a little switcheroo, and here we are. <laughs> Boy, do you look pissed. Devil Slayer does indeed look pissed. He pulls a spear from the folds of his magic cape and attempts to run Ian through. Before the weapon can pierce Fate's heart, a hand knocks it from Eric's grasp. It's Wonder Man. He's like, Look, Eric, I was totally down to help rescue your wife, but you did kill this guy's family. I'm not totally sure you're the good guy here. The fact that he went all wackadoo and off to your little hippie pal is kinda on you. So, enough with the murder already. Eric is like, well, shit, you're right. I guess I kinda suck, don't I? Everyone nods in agreement. I mean, it's off-panel, but I assume they do. How could they not? Cradling Sunshine's lifeless body, Eric teleports back to Earth. Now that his revenge is complete, Ian Fate seems like a broken and hollow man. Barely able to stand, he leans on Wonder Man for support. Wonder Man is like, Sorry if I was too harsh on your buddy there, Steve. Doctor Strange is like, No, it needed to be said. Eric is a real asshole. We really should have some sort of vetting process for membership. Beast is like, Speaking of which... When you get back to Earth, do you think you'll find time for us to talk about that thing that's been bugging me? It's very urgent. To be continued. 
And once again, Beast, I don't think that word means what you think it means. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, man. It's going great. It's uh, Saturday. I slept in. It's not too hot. And get to hang out with you and talk about this comic. Pretty good. Nice. Glad to hear it. Yeah, I'm having a pretty good time myself. Uh, it's nice. That we're recording a little earlier in the day than we often do. I'm treating myself to an Irish coffee, which is a good time. Ooh. And, you know, I can't do it if uh, we record too late, because then I'll be up all night, because I'm a million. <laughs> like, seriously, I used to be able to just drink coffee and then take a nap, mm -hmm. which, on the one hand, is, like, impressive. On the other hand, it seems like it was pretty wasteful. Yeah, caffeine keeps me up more than it used to as well. Mm. I wonder if that extends to other drugs. Do you think that other intoxicants would also have a more pronounced effect? Well. Guess we'll just have to split an eight ball and find out. <laughs> yeah. Have to give a that horse those assholes talk to Mr. Clompy a call. Me and Mr. Clompy had a bit of a falling out. Oh, really? Yeah. You know the phrase horseplay. Well, if you had attended the one that Mr. Clompy had written, you'd see why it's banned so many places. Wow. You feel like talking about a comic book? You bet. All right. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? You know, despite some of the really dark turns that it took, I quite enjoyed it. I feel like it laid the groundwork for a lot of things and storylines to look forward to. Mm-hmm. And it was engrossing. It kept me interested the whole way through yeah i felt the same it was definitely darker than i was anticipating and there were more than a few moments in it where i was like whoa seriously mm -hmm. but it didn't feel sensational in the way that it did that and i don't know i thought it was pretty good and despite how dark it was there was actually a lot of really fun stuff in there yeah it was a, a kind of a weird mix of weirdness and uh, almost like a horror type comic yeah, absolutely. I mean, from the twist at the end to the almost morality tale flavor of the story and how self-contained it was, it almost could have been like a Tales from the Crypt issue in some ways. And the artwork definitely gave it that kind of gloomy, ominous tone, too. I love the cover image. I think it's really, it's an unintentional thing, but the depiction of, I guess that's uh, Ian Fate in that star. Mm-hmm. In silhouette, looks like a like a real like disco devil. Yeah, I was honestly wondering how far in advance this cover was drawn. If it was before they knew who the bad guy was going to be, or if they were like, well, nobody actually knows who Ian Fade is anyway, since this is his first appearance. So we don't quite know what he's going to look like. Uh, probably he looks like the devil. He's a bad guy, so he probably has horns for hair. Yeah, we'll give him some horns and a. Uh... John Travolta stance. Mm hmm Put him in the middle of a starburst and uh, have him boss some demons around. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, it was an interesting cover. I noticed there's a little caption box that says, The non-team faces a fearful fate in a far-flung dimension. Mm. It seems like that's supposed to be a joke, but as I said, this is Ian Fate's first appearance, so there's no way anyone 
picking the cover up off a newsstand would get the joke unless they'd already read the comic. But mm -hmm. I still dug it. What did you think of the character Ian Fate? Well, I guess it was definitely a strong endorsement of the, the powers of good journalism. In a very backhanded way, yeah. Well, no, just that you can research anything and find out a lot. Oh, okay. I thought you just meant like how powerful he was that the mob decided they'd better murder him. No, I meant that, you know, after the tragic death of his family, he turns all of his journalistic abilities into, you know, figuring out everything he can about ES fucking P, <laughs> which is what I'm calling him now because what a jerk. Oh, he has absolutely earned the Danny Chase treatment. It's a shame that he already has a middle name, but mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. He now has a new second middle name, which is the word fucking, because fuck that guy. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. But so anyway, yeah, fate turns all of his uh, journalistic prowess on figuring out how to get back at this guy and to learning mystic arts to do it. And... Yeah, I, I thought he was actually, they treated him pretty nuanced. Like he's this, you know, really troubled, broken person seeking revenge and gets it. And then is just like, well, shit, I still feel bad. Yeah, it makes me wonder why there aren't more heroes that are research librarians. Like, I feel like anyone who gains their power through information, that should be their deal. I mean, there's Oracle in the DC universe, but I want more research librarian superheroes. Yeah. Strangely, that doesn't seem to show up in the letters <laughs> column very much. That's true. Probably they just got so many of them early on that they're like, we gotta stop printing these. Mm -hmm. It is weird that he is a reporter because we talked about how maybe his character design hadn't been set when they did the cover of the issue. His character design frankly seems off for a reporter. Did you get that feeling? Well, I think that he didn't dress in his amazing suit or grow that amazing mustache when he was still a reporter. I think that was totally a like, well, I'm into the mystic arts now and I've got to look like... Um... Mandrake. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Taking a clue from that asshole kid Cliff's book, uh, the kids all love Mandrake the Magician. This is how a magician dresses. Gotta start wearing a tuxedo all the time. Yeah, which I can only imagine is like crushed dark purple velvet. Well, it's odd because he does a quick change mid-exposition. If you look on page 8, when he first is confronting Devil Slayer, he is wearing a three-piece suit with a regular tie and a purple vest on under it. And then two pages later on page 10 and for the rest of the issue, it has gone to a full-on evening wear tuxedo. Mm. So possibly this is another element of his powers. Maybe he is still dressed like a reporter and these outfits are just mental projections or something. Frankly, I like the idea of the aesthetics of a reporter being put onto a practitioner of the mystic arts. Like, I like the idea of seeing, like, kind of a rumpled Kolchak the Night Stalker style magician. I think that would be pretty fun. Uh, and I, I wish we had gone a little bit more in that direction. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of like this idea of it being this cheesy, like, well, this is what I'm supposed to look like, right? 
do you think as part of that he shaved his head to have the widow's peak? Oh, maybe. Maybe he plucked <laughs> his hair. Man, that's dedication. But yeah, I want the scene where he like throws away the fedora with a little press card in the brim of it. And is like, won't be needing this anymore. Mm-hmm. Pulls out a top hat. Then it's like, no, that's too much. Like a training montage where he goes through all the like magician outfits and finally settles on this one. Combination training montage slash walking on sunshine, trying on outfits montage. Right. But yeah, something like that. Maybe one where he tries on the robes that have like stars and moons on them. The big cookie crisp wand. And this then like, no, I'm not going to do cookie magic most of the time. Like pulls a rabbit out and it hops away and he shrugs. <laughs> that monkey demon sitting there with his arms crossed and he keeps shaking his head at every outfit until he comes out in the tuxedo and then he just starts nodding. That'd be fun. I would totally read an Ian Fate book. Yeah. It's an interesting name choice, too, and I wonder to what extent it is intentional. If they had been trying to set him up more as a foil to Doctor Strange, that might make sense, because the DC Universe almost equivalent of Doctor Strange is a guy named Doctor Fate, who, coincidentally, J.M. DeMatteis ended up writing a lot of in the 80s. Huh. So I wonder if that's an intentional nod to him. I feel a little bit bad for Ian because we see that he's a very studious man. I think copyright laws would probably restrict him from ever getting a doctoral degree Mm -hmm. uh, because he can never start going by Dr. Fate or that's copyright infringement. Yeah, I guess like Fate Esquire doesn't have the same (laughs) ring. I mean, he could be Captain Fate. That'd be pretty cool. Mm. He could just buy a boat. Mm -hmm. If you buy a boat, and then you're the captain of that boat. Can you get people to just start calling you captain? You can try. Interesting. Hard to get people to do anything, though. You know. Yeah, but from what I've observed, there is not a lot of vetting process that goes into the uh, dating site seacaptainsonly.com. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if the rules for what legally constitutes a captain are a little bit more lax than for other titles. That might be why it is such a common honorific title used by superheroes. Mm -hmm. Like, you can just start calling yourself Captain Victory or whatever, and people will automatically assume you have some kind of a military rank. But if they ask, you can be like, no, 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 I'm I'm a captain in that uh, I own a rowboat, and I'm the captain of that boat. Technically, it's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you can just adopt it and hope that people... um follow along Mm -hmm. i don't think that would count as stolen valor if you actually own the boat Mm -hmm. the other things that i like about ian fate or captain fate as he probably will eventually be known i like that he pays his employees well and i like that he is polite because when he sends the ransom note to devil slayer you see that the telegram which the uh the demon who sent it declines a tip for because he's very well compensated already which is nice to know Mm -hmm. although frankly i'd still accept the tip oh sure hide it from uh, uncle sam well i mean when i was bartending i of course always declared all of my tips but being a demon he's probably less scrupulous than all of my friends in the service industry were Mm -hmm. but in that letter that he sends by demonic courier you see that it starts off with the phrase dear assassin 
I know it's like it's it's formal and pejorative at the same time, I guess. Yeah. And it plays into what you talked about, the nuanced nature of the character of Ian Fate. With the exception of the hippie murder, I gotta say, I'm kind of on Team Fate. Yeah, I was I was sort of with him <laughs> until he's like, well, you know, junkies are not innocent people and therefore have no value. It's <laughs> like, what? Yeah, took a real hard right turn there. Where did that come from, sir? <laughs> you were relatively understandable in your, your grief and your anger. Well, oh, I mean, if anything, it is a sideways move because also... Corey Payne didn't do anything wrong, either. It's not more understandable that he wants to murder her, but, like, he, he is like, oh, no, I couldn't go through with it. And I just decided, well, you know what? This hippie's, uh, he's not real. I don't know if he counts as innocent because he's just kind of useless. So it's okay to murder him. Well, it was the thing of it's he's useless because he's got a drug problem, you know? Right. That's probably implied, but what he just says is that he's worthless. He's not an innocent. Yeah. Which is not a great sentiment. No. And what's worse is that it really seems like the heroes, except for Devil Slayer, are like, eh, he's got a point. Mm -hmm. Like, that is the point where they become more sympathetic towards the villain, if you can call Ian Fate that, is when he does the only really villainous thing that he does, which is mm -hmm. kill that dude. Or, you know set up the weird demon-fueled Rube Goldberg device that leads to Sunshine's death. Mm -hmm. I also think it's weird, at the moment when that happens, there's a really odd choice that the letterer makes. It's Diana Albers, and when Wonder Man is having his confrontation with Devil Slayer, where he's like, no, you can't murder this guy. Remember, you killed his wife and kid. Does it look to you like he is singing the It's Your Fault? Um, let me go. It's your fault. <laughs> I read it a few different ways, but the way that the letters are offset, it looks like it's being sung in some way. And I was wondering why that choice was made and what exactly the tune is supposed to be. I was like, wait, is he making a Sondheim reference to the It's Your Fault song? Mm. But yeah, when I first read it, I was like, if fate is insane, if sunshine is dead, it's your fault. <laughs> Yeah, I did not notice that, and now I cannot unthink that. It, it is a very odd and very specific choice. And it is really weird that at that point, really all of the Defenders are treating fate in a very sympathetic way. Like, mm -hmm. I get that, yes, Devil Slayer is absolutely the bad guy in this situation. Like, pretty much soup to nuts. But this guy just did murder a hippie. And technically, that is a crime. A pretty serious one. Yeah, and there's not a shred of remorse, right? He looks at Devil Slayer and says, Ha ha ha! Now he's dead! <laughs> yeah, there, well, there's no remorse on his part, and there's no, like, even minorly chiding him on the part of any of the other heroes. Nobody's like, hey, you shouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. They're just like, hey, well, Devil Slayer, now you guys are even, okay? Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it, that's how it resolves right it's like well one for one all right well everybody go home exactly let's get back to i mean this is i think probably going to tip both our hands to a later category 
but oh my fucking god, I never liked Devil Slayer that much, but I did not know he was this much of a piece of shit. Yeah, yeah, me neither. He's, oh gosh. I couldn't actually figure out what the intention was behind the way that they described his past, in particular his, his war experience. Yeah. Like it was just so cavalier about napalming whole villages. I mean, they had hinted that that might be the case earlier, but they left the loophole of, well, no, maybe he didn't specifically do that, but that is what happened in the war. And now they are very much explicitly, hey, sure, he burned a bunch of villages filled with innocent people. And then when he got home, he was an alcoholic and his wife left him uh, and didn't treat him like the hero that he was. And mm -hmm. so he cleaned himself up and really turned the page in his life by murdering people. And he really started feeling better about himself once he started murdering people for the mafia. Mm -hmm. For money. Well, sure, for the money, but also for the self-esteem. And then the mafia lied to him and told him he was going to be killing a bad guy. And then it was a reporter who had been bugging them, and he fucked up and killed his wife and kid instead. Now, even if that target had been a mafia guy, you gotta do your due diligence. Like, the pipe bomb that he left would have killed the mafia guy's wife and kids. Would the implication be that that would have been okay? Because they were associated with the mafia? I also just, I, I don't get why this comic... <laughs> seems to think that it will build pathos for a character and add nuance to their backstory if you take an unsympathetic character and then try to create more pathos for them by having them kill an innocent person. Because mm -hmm. they did it with Nighthawk, too. They walked that one back a little bit. Yeah. But still, it's a weird thing to do, and it's a weirder thing to do twice. I know, it's a weird attempt at framing something where, can you imagine how bad you would feel if you accidentally killed the wrong person? Yeah! <laughs> Poor guy. I mean, look, we've all been there. Mistakes happen. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really pretty puzzling to me. Because it is one of those things you read it, and you come away with, oh, I'm supposed to have empathy for him? That he's had these bad experiences. But no, he's perpetrator of these bad yeah. experiences and i really am creeped out by this person and it doesn't help too like he was in the process of doing like the one good thing that he's done in this issue which is try to help sunshine and then as soon as he finds out that his wife cory is in or his ex-wife cory is in danger he completely abandons sunshine and just ditches him to be like well have fun kicking heroin cold turkey i'm out mm-hmm and the reason he states that he's going to go rescue his ex-wife is, last time we saw each other, it seemed like we might get back together. So I guess I'm going to go save her. Yeah, yeah, I might have a chance that, uh, you know, I might get lucky. <laughs> I mean, that totally implies that if it's like, well, I mean, if we were really done, then fuck it, let demons eat her. Yeah, ugh. Across the board, terrible, terrible job terrible guy and at no point does he even apologize to ian or show any remorse towards him or extend any empathy towards him like this is the guy whose wife and child you murdered and you're being a dick to him yeah he is doing something not cool but at least just be like i understand that you're upset but this is between you and me he doesn't even have that like kind of a pat line at any point he's just like i'm gonna kill you yeah, no, he's consistent. 
Yeah. <laughs> Give him that. But he's terrible. You know, and, and also you, you spoke about the, you know, kind of one good thing he thought of doing, which is, you know, helping Sunshine with his addiction. Mm-hmm. Every time Sunshine is called out either in dialogue or exposition, his name, his nickname is in quotes. Mm-hmm. I just kept reading that into everybody's voice, like, <laughs> it's a, like derisive quotes. Yeah. All right, sunshine. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, oh my god, even the exposition is doing that. This poor guy is having such a such a He's bad getting go. thrown to futons. When he first met Devil Slayer, Devil Slayer was just like, you might be a demon because you can see my outfit, so I'm going to murder you. And then he chases him around and like he biffs it on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Like, this guy has not had a good run of it. And then also, if that's going to be Devil Slayer's reaction to thinking someone might be a demon, an actual demon knocks on the door and his response is to calmly take the letter for him. I think he might have signed for it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Those are words. Oh, okay, thanks. What? No tip? Oh, sweet. <laughs> All right, cool. I mean, I would have murdered him if he had wanted a tip. Probably would have. What a... Ugh. Ugh. But it looks like he is gone from the Defenders at this point, because he's like, oh, I thought I could do better, but, uh, yeah, guess I'm a piece of shit. Bye! Mm-hmm. Tough to argue with. Indeed. I think as of this issue, Beast is joining up with the team. What did you think of him in this issue? Yay. Yeah, he was a lot of fun. Yeah. I really liked the way that the issue ended where it was like a cliffhanger, you know, back before you remember before binging <laughs> Yeah. a show would end and you'd be like, what is Kelsey Grammer's problem? What will happen to Damon <laughs> Hellstrom? Where are Kyle Val and Patsy and Gargoyle? I totally forgot that you conflate Beast with Kelsey Grammer because he played him. And I thought you were describing, I mean, yeah, there's so many cliffhanger episodes of Frasier. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, I should have I should have reminded you. Will he and Niles find a nice bottle of wine? <laughs> <laughs> Will they find where that small dog peed on the carpet? Um, yeah, it's good. It leaves you with all these questions. It did, although... You gotta wonder why Beast at some point isn't, I don't know, having Wong take a message or leave a note, because he says that his problem is super urgent, that he needs to talk to Doctor Strange about it. But the comic also informs us that when he asked if he could come inside and wait because it was really important, that was a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And he eventually just was like, oh, okay, I guess he's not coming home. I better just leave. Yeah, well, that might be on Wong. We'll find out later, but he's he's had a pretty rough month. Well, okay, even if he didn't take a message at that point, at some time during this adventure, there has to be an opportunity to multitask and be like, hey, can we have a little chat, Steve? Like, I know you're doing this, but, you know, they, they have a minute or two that they can talk. Like, mm-hmm. while they're doing something else. Like, in Law & Order, when the guy's stacking boxes when the cops come and question him. Like, well, Steve is doing some astral box stacking, they could have their exposition then. Yeah, I agree, but it's just part of the narrative structure, right? And it's They needed that for the cliffhanger. Yeah, I think I would be a little bit more forgiving of it if we hadn't had the same thing happen pretty recently with Damon Hellstrom, and we saw how bad that broke when he was like, oh, I should tell these guys about 
the six-fingered hand, but something keeps happening, so I'll hang out with them and fight crime for a while, and then eventually I'll ask them about it, and then it's like, oh, it's too late. Like, mm -hmm. Steve, I think, should have at some point been like, oh, he says he has something important to talk about. Maybe I will stop putting this chat off. Yeah, I can see both sides of it. If there's something that I probably don't want to hear or something I don't want to address, I'd be like, yeah, I'll, I'll bring that up in a minute. Do -do -do. <laughs> I guess that's fair. Speaking of Son of Satan, I'm getting some real mixed signals from Satan here. I know. What the hell? First it's all, let's go drink Flaming Mai Tais or whatever. And now it's just like, no, you go hang out in the Arizona desert and think about what you've done. Yeah, it's like, first I'm going to invade the world with my three best friends, the devil, the devil, and the devil. Mm -hmm. And we're going to take over the whole world in an elaborate ruse to try to trick you into coming and joining my team. And then the next time we see him, he's like, I don't think you're good enough to join my team. Why don't you go hang out in Arizona? Mm -hmm. Harsh. Yeah, well, he's the devil. Also a scathing indictment of Arizona. Right. Yeah, hell wasn't bad <laughs> enough. <laughs> Here you go. You have to go stay in Arizona. Please let me go back to hell. Please, please, I'll do anything. Yeah, that was an interesting couple panels. Um, I loved the effect of having Damon's tears burn the uh, desert floor. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. I am very curious as to where that is going. I, I gotta say, I am with Black Sabbath in that the devil seems like a real piece of shit. Yeah, he's a real war pig. Yeah, not a fan. Mm -mm. Once again, Satan, you're canceled. What did you think of the little uh, Nighthawk interlude in this? Again, I mean, I think, like I said last time, he probably got off a little too easy just paying his back taxes. Um, mm -hmm. I do think it's nice that he bought a brownstone for Patsy and Val to hang out at. Kind of, although... Not really necessarily the, the way you want to uh, show the world that you're going to take your financial responsibilities more seriously. Like, first thing you do after being indicted for fiscal malfeasance is use probably company funds to buy your friends some New York real estate. Oh, oh, you, you misunderstand me. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I read that as like he's had some sort of a redemptive thing for his... <laughs> financial malfeasance no but uh it's just for you know it's nice for val and patsy to not have to hang out at uh, steve's place all the time sure although i guess they are gonna live with isaac so i mean good for him i'm coming around on gargoyle it was a tough introduction but i like the idea of having an octogenarian monster be cast as the jack tripper in this three's company reboot oh sure yeah I felt a little bit weird about, I don't know, I, I get that they want to celebrate. I think it's a cute, whimsical touch, but uh, I don't know if you want to put free at last on a cake for a guy who hasn't served any jail time or faced much in the way of consequences. Ugh, yeah. It's a bit uncomfortable. Yep, I had that same reaction. It was nice to see his lawyer, Rosenblum, show a little bit more backbone than we're used to seeing out of him, where he confronts the fake g-men mm -hmm. okay 
Are they really working for a government agency? Daredevil seems to think they're not. Does that mean August Masters isn't working for a government agency either? I suspect that he's going to be uh, playing both sides. Hmm. Okay. But, uh, yeah, those uh, gas guns didn't look like standard issue government things. And frankly, it didn't seem like they were particularly well-trained with using them either, because they are guns that just shoot gas out of the nozzle, which fills the room, and then everybody in it knocks out, right? Except uh, them, somehow. I'm guessing they probably had some kind of nostril filters or something, you know? Mm. But it says that they took out their guns and aimed them. If it's just shooting gas that's going to fill the room, you don't need to aim those. You're just wasting time. Yeah, no, it's, it's very silly. Mm-hmm. Which I appreciated. Yeah. I was honestly a little bit disappointed that they didn't take Daredevil with them, though. Yeah, I wonder why they left him. Did they just take Kyle, or did they take his pals, too? They said Kyle Richmond and his three would-be saviors. So that indicates that, yeah, they also took Gargi, Val, and Patsy with them. I think they should have taken either everyone. I mean, like, Patsy's out of uniform. I don't know if they know that she's Hellcat. I guess they're pretty well-informed, but... They're not that well-informed if they don't know that Matt Murdock's Daredevil. I think pretty much everyone in the Marvel Universe knows that. Despite what he thinks. Mm. Despite him occasionally dressing up as his own identical brother. That is one of my favorite things, when he's Mike Murdock, who's like a fast-talking hipster, <laughs> who just wears sunglasses because he's a cool, cool guy. Oh, that's funny. When they first introduced that, and he's like, oh, Foggy Nelson, who I've known for 12 years. I never mentioned that I have an identical twin brother. And people buy it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, everybody buys it. I mean, he's wearing a hat and talking in slang. Matt Murdock doesn't do that. Must be his brother, Mike. Yeah, his best friend and his longtime love interest are both like, kind of weird that he never mentioned him before, but I guess it's his twin brother who's probably Daredevil. Okay. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. That that makes sense. Right. What did you think of Wonder Man? How familiar had you been with that character before? Um, not at all familiar, and I thought he was a lot of fun. Yeah, Wonder Man's an, an interesting character. He showed up early on in the Avengers, and he died in that issue. He was a villain and was mad at Tony Stark because Tony Stark was going to fuck over his company. And so he allowed himself to be manipulated by worse villains and got superpowers and then had a redemptive arc and died what's interesting is the issue in which he died was an issue of the avengers that george R. R. martin cited as being a huge influence and where he decided basically that i'm gonna make a lot of my characters die that's a good way to generate uh excitement in readers and keep them on their toes and feel like anything can happen wow no shit yeah so pretty influential character this uh this simon williams guy Plus, he's a Hollywood stuntman. Wow. I did not know that. That is interesting. He also bears, the way he's depicted in this comic, an uncanny resemblance to the founder of the Dr. Bronner's soap products. Oh, really? hmm I can't picture him in my mind. I can picture his style of prose, certainly. <laughs> I've stayed overnight at some hippies' houses in the past, and... Needed something to read in the bathroom, and oh boy, is there plenty there. Yep. So many exclamation points and hyphens, and talk of Spaceship Earth. But as for Wonder Man, 
I thought he was a lot of fun too, despite his singing It's Your Fault, which I did find myself thinking, wait a minute, what, what's that Alanis Morissette song that ends that way? And, and that's It's All Your Fault. So oh. he, he wouldn't have been singing it in that style, although that was what, where my mind went initially. Uh, Head Over Feet, I believe it is. Wow. So I was trying to picture him singing it that way. That was one of the different styles that I went through. But I like, too, that he's like, oh, sorry if I was too harsh on your buddy, Steve. And Steve's like, no, you raised a good point. Devil Slayer is really a piece of shit. <laughs> I'm going to send you a picture of this guy that looks almost... To my mind, just like the picture of uh, Wonder Man on page seven. Okay. Oh, that's Dr. Bronner? Apparently. I guess I've just seen like, is there like a stipple drawing of him on the side of the all-purpose cleaner bottle? No, I think it's just like a bunch of religious text. <laughs> oh, I can see why they don't put a picture. He looks like a mad scientist. Specifically, he looks like Dr. Strangelove. Right. I think you're being very cruel to Wonder Man. <laughs> well, it's I guess it's the sunglasses and the angle. It looks pretty similar. And similar haircuts, too. Okay, I, I can see it, but, uh, ooh. You can brush your teeth with it. You can wash your hair. <laughs> Put some Do on your pancakes. It'll clean your insides. Do a laundry. There was an interesting touch with the way the credits were done at the beginning of the book with the graffiti. It was so good. I really enjoyed that. I feel like a lot of times when you see the fake graffiti or various stylized credits, it doesn't work. I feel like this one really did. Yeah, I liked the touch of a uh, shooter was here on the on the ceiling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they took some liberties with the way the credits were done. And uh, yeah, instead of editor-in-chief for Jim Shooter's credit, it just says shooter was here. I liked that Al Milgram was edits. I thought that was nice. And it made sense in a weird sort of way where I think partly why the wall graffiti often doesn't work when it's attempted in these books is that it doesn't look like actual graffiti. But this is Sunshine's dilapidated apartment, and it isn't like this is a tag somebody's doing. You could just see, like, Sunshine not giving a shit about writing on the wall if he needs to try to remember something. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's that kind of a, a like loose i don't give a fuck scrawl and i thought it was really cool and a fun way to set the scene for the book yeah i agree well there's definitely more to talk about i think most of what i wanted to bring up is going to come up in the minutia was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get into that no i think everything will come up there okay Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting with? Let's talk about clothes. You got it. Sartorially speaking, which fashion in this issue did you find most noteworthy? the disguise suit that Devil Slayer like puts on himself when he goes to answer the door to take the demon telegram mm -hmm. is classic bad guy colors, purple and green, mm. uh, Lex Luthor kind of suit. And it's funny, I was like, wait, is Devil Slayer? Are they trying to say that he's evil? And then I got to page four, he's like, yep, totally evil. Good point. And we do see a bad guy wearing those colors later on. One of the fake G-men is wearing a purple checked jacket with a green shirt under it. Yep. Which I thought that was a decent look, too. 
before we see Eric put on that suit, we're going to talk about the decor of Sunshine's apartment. I think we touched on it last time, but I, I think that Grateful Dead poster might be new. The Grateful Dead poster is certainly more detailed than in the last. I think before it was just written on a piece of eight and a half by 11 paper, the words Grateful Dead or something. Mm. But you see that and you see some kind of a weird, like vaguely surreal Manet poster of the, uh, sorry, not Manet. Who's the guy that did the picture of the dude with the apple in front of his face? Magritte. Magritte, yep. Yeah, it looks like a Magritte-style poster of the Beatles that's hanging on the wall. I was trying to rack my brain for, like, was there just a really poorly executed, <laughs> like, <laughs> face drawing of the Beatles poster at some point? Or that's just in this comic? I think that's just in this comic. I could see it being, though, where it's like when you have to depict that it is a picture but you're drawing a picture, you have to kind of make it down a notch, you know? So in this world where everything looks like it is a drawn picture, if you have a drawn picture, it's like a copy of a copy, so it's a little bit worse. So uh, maybe that's what they're going for with that. Could be. I did also notice it took me a while to try to parse what one of his other posters was, because all you can read is the not heel for Dren. And I was like, what? And then I, I like had a flashback to being a kid and having all of my parents' friends be hippies. And war is not healthy for children or other living things. Yep, exactly. Like, it came to me all in a flash. I think he had that in the, uh, the previous issue. Oh, okay, that might be why it was on my brain. Um, did he also have a, it'll be a great day when they have to hold, the army has to hold a bake sale to buy a new bomber and all the children have enough food to eat? No, I think that was just on 1980s bumper stickers. Okay. Yeah, for other fashion, we talked about it a little bit, but the changing outfit of Ian Fate. Uh, when you see him, as I said, on page eight, he's wearing a very dapper three-piece suit, purple on purple, a light purple vest with a darker purple jacket. And then during the course of his exposition, he ends up changing into a full tuxedo. Mm -hmm. Good for him. Yeah. And I got to say, I, I prefer the first look with the, the tie and the, I don't know what you call that, like oil baron mustache. He sort of <laughs> looks like he'd be like an evil businessman from the 20s. Well, he keeps the mustache. Mm -hmm. But just the way that it's drawn and in, in, on that page where those two panels where you first see him mm -hmm. yeah also his weight seems to fluctuate wildly throughout the issue like for the most part he's a little bit stocky has kind of a uh mr rosenbloom build to him until the very end at which point i guess his mad pursuit of revenge and having killed a hippie takes like 50 pounds off him and he, he is gaunt and thin mm -hmm. yeah no that's uh all that all that revenge burns a lot of calories mm -hmm. or else vengeance is just like water weight and uh you can just kind of sweat it out and we see once again that sunshine is wearing his woodstock 1969 t-shirt it may be in character that that is the only t-shirt that he owns yeah i don't, I don't think he has other clothing mm -hmm. speaking of fashion though i think that will lead us into our next segment Corey. Behold or be gone. Having a psychosensitive wardrobe. 
Hmm. Curious. My interpretation of what is happening with Ian Fate, and to a lesser extent with Devil Slayer, is that their outfits seem to change based on what they are doing. Like, they can control it, but also, when Ian is like, well, I'm explaining things to you, he's dressed a little bit more like a professor. And then, when he is putting on a big display, he is dressed like a full magician. Would you want a wardrobe that you could change with your mind, but if you weren't paying attention, it would just pick up on what vibe you were putting out and change on its own accord? Yeah, 100%. The only, I guess, drawback or question that would qualify the choice is, did the people around you observing your outfit have sort of a dream logic where they're just like, they don't see that as weird? I think they might see it as weird. Okay, well, that would immediately like then call you out as having some sort of supernatural ability, which would basically get you like locked up and studied, so... Not necessarily. I mean, nobody's locked up David Blaine. Maybe they should, but they haven't yet. I feel like the whole secret identity thing in comic books is kind of overplayed. Well, say, for example, I'm getting out of my car Mm -hmm. and I'm feeling like a cool guy. So I've got like, I don't know, a fancy suit, but I'm walking into like a Home Depot or a Lowe's and then it changes from a suit to like my my work clothes. Uh huh. And somebody sees that as I'm walking across the parking lot and calls who would you call i don't know i don't think you'd call the cops on that hey that guy just (laughs) i would hope they wouldn't (laughs) i swear he had a suit man and then he didn't and like whoa yeah i don't know how how that would play out but that's the only risk i think that's a pretty minor risk i think the main risk would be like if you weren't paying attention i already don't have a great poker face even though i sometimes think that i do for some reason No, you don't. No, I know I don't. (laughs) But yeah, I can see that problem being exacerbated if I'm talking to somebody I don't particularly care for, and then all of a sudden I'm wearing a t-shirt that just says, fuck you, you fucking fuck, and has a pair of middle fingers on it. (laughs) Uh, On the other hand, I think that's kind of worth it, though. I think overall that power would be very convenient. I also used to love the cartoon Shirt Tales when I was a little kid. Do you ever watch that? Um, it doesn't ring a bell, refresh my memory. I was about a bunch of toddler animals who lived in a tree in a park, and they all had magic t-shirts that would print out whatever they were thinking on their t-shirts. Also, the orangutan thought he was Humphrey Bogart. Oh, no, I think we debated if you had made this up or not. Okay, I looked into it, I didn't make it up. Okay. But I think it would be fun to feel like the protagonist in my favorite childhood TV show. Kind of like if you had Benny Hill powers. (laughs) The possible downside, and it would be a downside really only in retrospect, I think if I had unlimited wardrobe resources, there are many phases of my past that would be a lot more embarrassing. (laughs) Oh, wait, so you don't just get this now in your, you know, your finished adult state. You had this your whole life first of all i don't think that i'm fully formed or an adult necessarily oh man this is as good as it gets i'm sorry friend oh no (laughs) no i'm sure there'll be a time when i will look back on myself now and be embarrassed but like when i was in my early 20s i could totally see myself thinking oh man here's an outfit i just thought of awesome and uh if all it took was a thought to make me actually be wearing that outfit 
there are a lot of pictures that I would kind of wish didn't exist anymore. I love this idea. <laughs> also, it wouldn't have been that bad because in the phases that I think of as particularly <laughs> mortifying, like you actually had to take film pictures. Right. Good point. Only a few of those made it through, some of which you posted on Facebook. Thanks for that. <laughs> I think you'll be fine. All right. Then, yeah, you know what? I'm giving it a behold. It's a pair of beholds, man. When the <laughs> world is healthy and we go out <laughs> on the town, we are going to look good. Hell yeah. We wouldn't have had to go to Goodwill to buy all that stuff for that dance contest either. I know. Could have just willed breakaway pants into existence. Corey, I'm going to have so many tracksuits. <laughs> oh my God. For any occasion. Ugh. You know how hard it is to find a nice brown tracksuit? I can imagine. Very. I was brown with orange stripes. Oh, mm. boy. Practically need a time machine to go back to the late 70s. Well, not now that we have these new psychosensitive wardrobes, we don't. Pair beholds. Pair beholds. Thank goodness you were able to come up with that, too. I, I was racking my brain, and I just couldn't come up with one that didn't have some like really dark turn <laughs> to it it took me a while because <laughs> i was just like uh murdering children no I, <laughs> i'm pretty sure i hope that's gonna be a be gone for both of us would you like to summon a squad of demons nope that's not good <laughs> Corey, what was your favorite sound effect in this issue ah there were a couple good ones i'm seeing a pattern emerging where i think i like sound effects that end in like a oomp mm. Because my two favorites were boomp and fump. Yeah, I definitely went with fump. Good to end in a plosive. But like a muffled plosive, Right. pretty good. Yeah, if you're beast and you're drop kicking somebody, it's going to make a muffled plosive because of all your fur. Uh-huh. It's just science. I can see fump also being something that like Halloween store junkyard dog would have printed on his wrestling trunks. Hmm. Because a uh, real junkyard dog had thump written on his pants. Oh, okay. I see where you're going. Yeah, I think that was pretty obvious, Corey. I, I think everyone remembers what early 80s wrestling star junkyard dog had written on his pants. I am likely in the minority here. Yeah. I, and I, I somehow forgot that detail. And you've led a very sheltered existence, Corey. <laughs> oh, I remember junkyard dog. I just don't remember his pants. Well, you're missing out because they said thump on them. And I guess canonically, boomp is the sound it makes when somebody is forcibly moved to a piece of furniture that's upholstered. Is that what happens when a uh, sunshine is thrown down onto his futon? Yeah, it's, I think that's the same noise when Hulk threw Valkyrie onto a couch. Oh! Made a boomp. Yeah, that is a non-voluntary upholstered sit-down. Mm -hmm. Man, I feel bad for sunshine not just for getting murdered and not just having to quit heroin cold turkey but uh i've been staying on a futon for the past couple nights was that because i've been staying downstairs with finley those things are a lot harder than i remember them being mm. not a ton of given that thing so tough there sunshine yep Corey, every issue of a defender's comic has a best defender and a worst offender I suspect I know the answer to half of this question, but who did you have as your best defender, and who did you have as your worst offender? Well, we'll start with the worst, because that's the one you know the answer to. That is uh, ES fucking P for being a murdering asshole. 
yeah, Devil Slayer is a total piece of shit in ways that we have gone over at length. Seriously, fuck that guy. Yep, two votes for that. And uh, for best, this one's a little trickier. Ultimately, I, I went with Wonder Man for stopping Fate's murder and, mm-hmm. and telling ESP what's what. Uh, that said, it is mitigated by the fact that he and everybody else seem to be totally fine with Sunshine getting killed because he wasn't deemed as having value. Yeah, I had him in the lead really throughout the issue until it got to the last page. But between him singing, It's all your fault! After a man (laughs) has just died. And, yeah, him just really devaluing, I think, the life of Sunshine. I couldn't really give it to him. Beast, I thought, was really fun throughout the issue. I was tempted to give it to him. Mm. But, again, he does not multitask his exposition, and he really needs to. It's been weeks, and he didn't leave a note. You know? I can't quite give him the best. So, ultimately, I went with Patsy. She decides to fight despite not wearing her costume, which you see Matt Murdock is not willing to do. She is polite, remembering that age-old lesson that when somebody buys you a house, you say thank you. Mm. But mostly I gave it to her because I think she was the one who probably was thoughtful enough to get a cake easel. Because you see when they have the cake on the table, it is tilted up on a board at a 45-degree angle so that we, the readers, can read that it says free at last. Mm Mm-hmm. But also, I think so that Kyle can read it because he can't stand up because it's, uh, he's got his diurnal paralysis. Mm-hmm. So he's stuck in his wheelchair. He won't be able to read the cake. She was thoughtful enough to get a cake easel. So uh, yeah. I gave her the nod as the best defender. That is very nice. That's a good point. It does look like it was a really nice little uh, party until the uh, not feds showed up. Yeah, I don't know. There's something endearing to me, despite the fact that I think it was an uncomfortable message printed on the cake. But I like the idea of a billionaire having an office party with a sheet cake. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of cute. Let's have us a battle of the band names. It's getting longer. Yeah, nice. In last week's contest, we saw a new champion crowned. We did. Savage Assault of the Mind Rats was finally defeated by Victoria's Anguish, the all-female horror punk band. Wow. Yeah. Savage Assault of the Mind Rats had a pretty long run of it, but uh, Victoria's Anguish beat them fairly handily, so uh, I think we could potentially have a new juggernaut on our hands unless we can slow them down with this week's offering. What band names were you able to find in this issue? I came up with uh, three choices. As did I. Oh, cool. Okay, I think I'll save my favorite for last. The first one is probably a metal band, and they're called Tears Burn the Earth. Ooh, that's some dark shit, man. Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty good. Thank you. I had... I'm still trying to figure out exactly what kind of music they are, but uh, conspicuous by their absence. Hmm. 
I mean, they're definitely hipsters. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if they are a band that does all wordless songs. Like uh, John Cage's Silence, you know? Oh, just like no music at all? Yeah. That's conspicuous by their absence. But like, they're very popular. I do not like that. No, I don't either. But I I can see that being a decent band name for a band like that. I don't like any art that makes you feel like stupid for not getting it intentionally. Yeah, like in jazz where it's the notes they're not playing. And fuck you with that shit. Although then potentially conspicuous by their absence could be the best jazz band in the world because they're not playing any of the notes. <laughs> or all of them. I don't know. Uh. Oof. Yeah, I like the name. I don't know how I feel about these guys. though. Okay, well, how do you feel about Parlor Tricks? Ooh. <laughs> I think they are a synth pop band, like a synth pop party rock band. Hmm. I, I don't know why when you said that, I just, I got the, God, who sang, is it Crocus that sang Barroom Blitz? They did a cover of it. I don't think they did the original. I think it was a band like Sweet, something like that. But in my mind, I know it was not the original version, but it was uh, Tia Carrera's band from Wayne's World who sang that song. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's it. But yeah, I think Parlor Tricks is pretty fun. I can also just see them being, I don't know, in the mold of Foreigner, possibly just because I'm thinking of the song Head Games. Mm, I could see that. What else did you have? I had one that is definitely a metal band somewhere in the, the Nordics called The Voice of Vengeance. Ooh. Which is not to be confused with the Swedish metal band The Voices of Vengeance, which does exist. Wow. So they may have a little... Of their own battle of the (laughs) band names. I think what would set Voice of Vengeance apart from Voices of Vengeance is that they would refuse to harmonize. One voice at a time. I think that's pretty good. I think my favorite is a Yiddish-language Hasidic boy band called (laughs) Boy Chick. (laughs) They get some nice, like, klezmer backing music. They got a guy like Modest Yahoo doing dancehall reggae. Oh, boy. But yeah, they are boy chick, uh, which is based on something that the Beast says, which yeah. may, may come up later on. I like it. <laughs> what was your final pick? My final pick is a duo. Okay. And gosh, I'm not sure exactly of their sound, but definitely some kind of like indie pop, like Tegan and Sarah, Belle and Sebastian, but with a decidedly different theme, and they are called Mage and Mutant. Ooh, Mage and Mutant. Mm-hmm. That's pretty fun. Yeah. So you're seeing them being like... Like a pleasant to listen to kind of, you know, pop music. Some of it's acoustic, some of it's electric. Um, okay. But there's definitely got to be some sort of a, a magic and fantasy kind of theme to it, with, mm. or a science fiction theme to it with uh, the, the mix of the two there. Sure, sure. So like... Uh, like... Like like Hawkwind meets Bell and Sebastian. <laughs> Ooh, okay, yeah, yeah. Like uh, Simon and Garfunkel by way of Dio. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, so of our six choices, which is your favorite? For me, it's between Parlor Tricks and uh, Mage and Mutant. Mm. How about you? Gosh, I, I'm still pretty fond of Boy Chick, I gotta say. What do they sound like again? Uh, they, they're a boy band. 
like in sync or yeah like like in sync backstreet boys type band but with uh with more klezmer music and one of the members definitely mostly does dancehall reggae okay as inspired by modest yahoo also their songs are in yiddish well only because jc chases and reggae are musician and music i like i th- I think we can go with boy chick okay sounds good we'll see how boy chick does i i think they probably get an exclamation point oh they gotta have an exclamation point mm-hmm. uh we'll see how they do against victoria's anguish i think that should be a fun battle yeah i'd go to that show yeah me too we had one of our listeners hit me up on twitter and they started doing logos for some of the bands that we've come up with for battle of the band names oh no shit that's cool yeah alex holt uh came up with a really cool logo for tattered emotions so uh, i'll make sure that i i share that and uh any more that they come up with so uh yeah that's that's fun i'm looking forward to seeing more of those nice Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel in this issue what words did you like best, much like you would like a pie if it were not made out of steel? You know, there was no shortage of words <laughs> in this issue. There was a lot to choose from. I think I'm going to go with just the very beginning exposition from the first page. I'll see if I can channel Rod Serling a little bit. Okay. Greenwich Village. Across the decades, it has been home to the beat generation, the love generation, and the me generation, providing a haven for free spirits who came seeking the nebulous magics their hearts so desperately craved. Very nice. That's a decent Rod Serling, I think. Eh, <laughs> you're kind. <laughs> One of the things I really like about J.M. DeMatteis's writing is you get a mix of some very, like, flowery almost purple prose in some of the captions and then some very fun like cheeky dialogue in the actual word bubbles and it makes for a really fun mix one of the scenes in which you get kind of a mix of those two things is when there is a uh bee-butted monkey demon who is handing a telegram to simon and we've mentioned it before but he says don't bother about a tip mr Payne." I draw a very handsome salary. And then he dissolves. And the caption work after he leaves says, Cackling, the demon thing fades, leaving behind a sulfurous stench. Devil Slayer does not relax. He has spent years building walls, keeping others at a distance, disguising the inner man as sedulously as he disguises the outer. And I thought that was just really cool and also made me look up the word sedulously. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. It's, it's a really nice piece of phrasing and a nice little vocabulary flex. I appreciated that. Yeah, means um, like uh, studiously, right? Mm-hmm. In a dedicated and consistent manner. That's a good word. Mm-hmm. So I liked that a lot. I also liked, as we referenced before, something that the Beast thinks to himself when he sees sunshine for the first time, which is, Sheesh, this is one wasted boy chick. He's yellower than a ripe banana. And I thought that was really fun. I also think it's interesting that the Beast would be speaking Yiddish, where he grew up in the suburbs of Illinois and is the son of Norton and Edna McCoy. There's nothing particularly Jewish in his background. I think he is described at one point as having been raised Episcopalian. But 
dropping a few Yiddish phrases is a thing that you find a lot of comic book characters doing because so many comic book creators, including J.M. DeMatteis, grew up in Jewish families in New York. So it becomes just kind of like a default setting for a lot of characters in a way that I think is kind of fun. Another possibility, though, is that it is an example of Beast just flexing his linguistic abilities. He is a super genius and is very well studied in a number of subjects. And you do just see him dropping different languages from time to time, which you also see on page 17 when, after Wonder Man punches a demon towards him, he says, Muchas gracias, Wendy. I'll see that it's disposed of in a way that won't prove harmful to the environment. <laughs> Which I thought was also fun. Yeah, Beast has uh, got some good dialogue and is a fun character in this issue. Yeah, so I, I like to think that he is a, a bit of a polyglot and just uh, drops various languages from time to time in a way that I would probably find super annoying. <laughs> Maybe so. Corey, what was your favorite panel? I'll start, I think, with my backup, which is on page eight, and it's just this little inset of a cityscape. It's just so well executed. It, it captures the kind of a dusk or, or twilight feel of, you know, an industrial part of town. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of foreshadowing before what is my favorite panel, which is when we first see Captain Fate standing in a pentagram with all these demons and Corey floating in the air surrounded by daggers and Devil Slayer looking super freaked out by it. It's just a, a really, I don't know, it feels like a kind of a classic bad guy magician setup. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, I like that. I think that's really nice. Uh, you mentioned the backgrounds. There is a slightly different breakdown of the work by the inkers in this issue. It's uncredited, but the editor, Al Milgram, did most of the inks for the backgrounds, and Joe Sinnott did the inks for the main figures. So uh, I think that's a less jarring breakdown of work than having some inkers do some pages and other inkers do others. And I think it makes for some really nice panels. That explains the great level of uh, detail on that kind of wizard's quarters on page nine with all these bricks and stones and mm -hmm. books and scrolls and all kinds of stuff. That is really cool looking. Yeah, I like that whole montage scene a lot as Ian Fate is explaining his uh, backstory and how he came to be a practitioner of the dark arts. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of panels in this that I liked. There is a panel of Daredevil or Matt Murdock in this case using his super senses. It looks like just because I'm so attuned to reading Aqualad stuff, he's calling to his finny friends like quick get some fish to help us out of this mess but it doesn't end up working out but it's a cool looking panel it's done a two-toned all in yellows and oranges and it's just a line drawing of matt murdoch's face with those concentric circles shooting out of it i thought that was really cool i think my absolute favorite is probably the final panel of the issue there's just so much going on in it you get a very shell-shocked looking ian fate being helped kindly away after he has just murdered someone by Wonder Man. Steve is looking very stern and has his arms crossed over his chest as he talks about what an asshole Devil Slayer was. And Beast is climbing some kind of an alien dildo tree. <laughs> well, there is a nice polka dot sunset in the background. 
And it's just a really cool looking page, and uh, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, there is a lot going on. A lot of dildos growing on that tree. Mm -hmm. The trick is you gotta cull the smaller dildos early in the season if you want the rest of the crop to grow in and ripen properly. <laughs> Corey, although he does not appear in this issue, I think we would both agree that the Hulk rules. In this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? Well, he took a, uh, a lesson from Captain Fate. And it's just, you know, the classic, two wrongs don't, don't make a right. Mm. You know, if you murder to avenge murder, you, you're probably just going to wind up feeling pretty bad. Yeah, I think that is a good lesson for us all to learn. A lot of potential murder-related lessons to learn from this issue. And the one that I had the Hulk learning was, hey, if you murder somebody's family, an apology is in order at the very least. Yeah, fair. And that's the Hulk's rules. <laughs> well, Corey, I have just one more question I have to ask you. Okay. In the year of our Lord, 1982, and the month of our Lord, February, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Oh, boy. February was a rough month for Wong, financially mm. speaking. Oh. He had invested the majority of his savings in two areas of uh, interest, one of which is his interest in Jamaican incense, which has come up before. Mm -hmm. And the other is uh, fancy cars, actually. Ooh. So about half and half, he had, you know, one is a above the table investment, which was in the uh, DeLorean Motors Company, made famous, I guess, by the uh, Back to the Future movies. And unfortunately, February 19th, the... Uh, DeLorean factory in Belfast was put into receivership, essentially meaning that it was not financially viable anymore and was taken away and given to people to be put in charge of in the hopes that it could be uh, made profitable again, which didn't happen. Then it went bankrupt later that year. So Wong lost that investment. Mm -hmm. And then his kind of uh, not above board investment in the Jamaican incense also totally failed because on uh, February 5th of 1982, the DEA announced the uh, seizure of over 3,000 tons of marijuana. Oh my. And route from South America to North America, which is a, a pretty huge bust. Almost 500 people were involved, about 92 boats. But yeah, one of those boats had <laughs> something Wong was hoping to make use of in Greenwich Village and didn't make it. Oh, dear. Tough month for the guy. Yeah. Well, that's part of what he was up to, but that's not all that he was doing. A large part of how he was spending his time that month was, as we saw in this issue, attending to Sunshine as he tried to kick his heroin addiction. And so a lot of the month, Wong was hanging out with Sunshine and making him tomato soup and, you know, trying to keep him as comfortable as he could, given the circumstances. But then he got a call from Steve saying, Wong, I need you to cease your ministrations to this sunspot person. See, Steve had seen a press conference that was held on February 22nd by Mayor Ed Koch, announcing that Koch was going to run for governor of New York. And Steve fucking hates Ed Koch. He just does not care for him. He thought he was a terrible mayor, 
He uh, resented that Koch had spent all of that money helping the Titans rebuild their T-shaped skyscraper and didn't kick a few bucks down to old Bleecker Street. And so he decided he was going to hold a press conference and tell everyone what a bad job Ed Koch was doing. See, he thought he had the smoking gun, which mm. was Ed Koch had promised to really clean up the graffiti on the streets of New York. And Steve had taken a bunch of pictures from the opening pages of this comic book and was like, clean up the graffiti in this town, eh? What about up here on this tenement wall where it says Shooter was here? Or edits Milgram. Look, this graffiti's everywhere. This Ed Koch is doing a terrible job. So that was his planned speech for this press conference. And he told Clea, Clea, when Doctor Strange speaks, the world listens and <laughs> writes down notes, probably, and records it to play later when they're being intimate with their loved ones. <laughs> and Clea was like, yeah, I I'm sure they do, Steve. But you set your press conference for this Friday. Friday's... Not a great night to hold a press conference. And Steve was like, well, why not? And Clay is like, well, for one thing, Dallas is on. Everybody's going to be watching Dallas. And he's like, the entire city? How could they be watching the entire city of Dallas? And Clay is like, no, it's, it's a TV show. It, it stars Larry Hagman. You know, from, uh, from I Dream of Jeannie, Larry Hagman? And, and Steve was half listening, but he was like, well, I'll just have to see that that show's canceled get everyone to watch my press conference instead. So that was the call that Wong received, sort of, because Steve immediately forgot both the name of the show and the name of the main actor. So Wong got a telephone call that was Steve saying, Wong, I need you to drop what you're doing, whatever it is, and I need you to cancel the television show starring Lawrence Hagfish, something like that, Hag... Probably hagfish. Definitely a sea creature. Wong was like, well, Steve, you, you've got me watching this sunshine guy. Are you sure you want me to stop doing that? I, I haven't left his side this whole time. And Steve's like, no, definitely do that. And cancel any television shows that star Lawrence and then a sea creature as a last name. And so Wong did as he was told. Hagman is in fact not the name of a sea creature. Steve was very confused. So Dallas aired as planned, but there were a couple of unforeseen consequences of this. One was that Wong left Sunshine, and as soon as he did, he and Fate kidnapped him, which led to Sunshine's demise. The other thing was that after, I believe, 31 consecutive years of airing, the Lawrence Welk show was canceled. <laughs> Ed Koch ended up not winning the gubernatorial race anyway, so uh, Steve took it as a job well done and assumed that everyone had listened to his press conference, even though nobody attended. So all's well that ends well. Oh, except for the death of Sunshine, which, as has already been noted, apparently nobody gives a fuck about. Mm. And that's the Wong doings that Wong was doing in February of 1982. Dang. Dang indeed. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this Defenders issue. I had a lot of fun chatting with you. Yeah, likewise. We will be back next week to talk some Teen Titans. And in a couple weeks, we'll take a look at another Defenders issue and find out what Beast's big, important story is. Yay. 
Looking forward to that. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can be reached electronically, can you imagine, at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up in uh, various places on the socials media. As referenced just this issue, we're up on uh, ccaptainsonly.com. And uh, what's, the, what's that other website that some people like? Twitter. Yeah, we're mm-hmm. on there too. Uh, there's some Facebook, some Instagram. We're on LinkedIn, Grinder. You know, all the places you would expect a podcast about comic books to be located. And hey, if you can't find us in any of those places... There's another place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? Oh, I think I'll probably uh, put that giant container of Dr. Bronner's Castile soap (laughs) to use and just start cleaning the joint up real nice. Oh, so you're saying these people have filthy, dirty hearts. Oh, no. I just, you know. Just covered in scum and probably toxins. That's why you need the Dr. Bronner's, right? I wasn't really going there. I just, you know, it's nice to tidy up. All right. Seems like we got a slight difference of opinion. I think that our listeners' hearts are good and clean and full of of love, not dirt and filth, but (laughs) what do I know? So while you're trying to cleanse the sin out of our listeners' hearts, I'm just going to be reading that Dr. Bronner's bottle. That'll probably take most of the week. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by checking us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly show, What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that my wife Lisa co-hosts with me, where we talk about 70s Howard the Duck comics by Steve Gerber. There is also a whole bunch of bonus video content that is up there in the form of me doing reviews of classic comic books. Lately, I've been doing a bit of a dive into 70s and 80s comic books about the shadow. That's been a lot of fun. So if you'd like to check that stuff out or any of the other billions of hours of content that we've got up there, probably not quite billions but there's a lot of stuff up there There, there's a bunch of bonus podcasts and videos and stuff like that for you to check out that content is available exclusively to our donors as a thank you for being so supportive and helping to keep the show going so thank you guys for supporting us and i hope you like that extra stuff if you'd like to support the show in a non-monetary manner Corey, what's a way people could do that uh two main ways are tell people about the show to Try and uh, get more people to hopefully listen in and mm-hmm. to leave a review for the show wherever you get your podcasts. I think those are probably both pretty good calls. Write it up there on the subway wall, right under the words of the prophet. Prophet wasn't that shatty. There's probably still plenty of room up there to leave a nice little messy tag that says, tighten up the defense. Corey, I'm encouraging lawlessness. Also, the uh, second um, Simon and Garfunkel reference of the episode. Lisa's been listening to a lot of Graceland lately, so I think I just got Paul Simon on the brain. Mm. That's a good record. Yeah. So just leave us a review that says, uh, 
Fat Charlie the Archangel sloped into the room and said, I have no opinion about this. I have no opinion about that. I only have opinions about Tighten Up the Defense. It's the best show. Corey, what would be another example of a review someone might leave for us? Either on their podcatcher of choice or on, say, a subway wall. Um, this podcast is The Bee's Knees Five Stars. Very nice. Bees famously having very nice knees. Mm -hmm. We will be back soon. Look forward to talking to all of you. And until next time, thump! You know, like it says on Halloween Store Junkyard Dogs Pants. Goodbye! And they knew it! finished my second cup of coffee i should have put whiskey in it you were smart to do that what were you thinking Corey? i was thinking it's too early but i mean like that's the best part about an irish coffee is it's like nothing they cancel each other out mm. that's stimulant depressant i'm basically drinking water Corey. okay <sighs> hasn't been my experience but nor mine, but in theory, mm. <laughs> it's basically like uh, like vitamin water. Because, mm. yeah, yeah it, it's they cancel each other out. But also, you know, you get a little bit of uh, I've talked about this before, but the dynamic tension between the two just draws your mind taut and firm before ultimately canceling each other out. And mm. uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's basically vitamin water for your brain. Irish coffee is vitamin water for your brain yes okay <laughs> the listeners of the show <laughs> learn so much oh this isn't for them rick's still singing right now oh i might drop it in at the end sure to use the more you know music i will Tighten up the defense p.o box 20311 portland oregon 97294 if you do, you get... Nope. That's, if you do, you get to write us a letter. <laughs> Fuck. Dynamic tension. Indeed. <laughs> Basically water. <laughs>